Hello and welcome to The Coping Toolbox, a child psychology podcast hosted by clinical psychologists Dr. Layla Din Osman, Dr. Mary Simmering McDonald, and Dr. Jennifer Vrend. We hope that this podcast helps parents, children, and teens learn new coping skills in dealing with their stress and anxiety and to help strengthen relationships in their lives. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Coping Toolbox, a child psych podcast. I'm Dr. Mary Simring McDonald, and I'm so excited to be joined by Shauna Haight today. Shauna is a pediatric early intervention speech language pathologist who has been working in the field since 1987. She has worked in a variety of settings, including a children's treatment center, school boards, and now in her private clinic, Ottawa Speech Language Services, through Centerpoint Professional Services in Ottawa, Ontario. Shauna is a passionate and enthusiastic advocate for early intervention in toddlers, as she has seen the positive outcomes for the kids and their families many times over in her career. She advocates for a let's try it and see what happens approach instead of a let's wait and see approach. I have had many opportunities to work with Shauna in different capacities over the past few years, and I can really attest to what an incredible practitioner and overall human being she is. She <laughs> does such an amazing work, and all of the kids really adore Shauna. <laughs> She's wonderful. So welcome to the podcast, Shauna, and thank you so much for chatting with me today. Well, thank you, Dr. Mary. That was a beautiful introduction. <laughs> and uh, I love the kids and their families. I'd be really happy to have you here. Thank you. Um, thank you. And, you know, I thought that we would just start by talking a little bit about the fact that this pandemic has been such a challenging time for families, right? And especially for kiddos who do have higher needs, it's been really tough on them. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what your observations have been during the pandemic um, with families who are worried about their children's communication skills. I would love to talk about that. It's been a very interesting time um, for everybody all around. And I guess last, when the pandemic first started last March, there was a huge shift in how we were delivering services. We moved from hands-on approaches in office, working with the families and the kids that would come in uh, into our clinic. And all of a sudden there was a total pivot to telepractice. Um, so there's been opportunities through telepractice that haven't been present. Uh, prior to uh, the pandemic. Um, and some of those opportunities have allowed me to see really uh, positive things and also a lot of um, uh, difficulties and frustrations that families are feeling. Mm -hmm. And so having been in, I feel privileged to be invited into people's homes and to help them with their children. And on in that way, the the intervention has actually improved because I'm really a strong advocate for parent involvement in intervention. And so I've really been able to work with the parents in the home and um, see the kids in their natural habitat mm -hmm. and, and have some influence there. On the flip side, the other thing that I've uh, observed with the families is their frustration 
and they're um, and seeing the difficulties that they're having during this pandemic. Uh, for a number of reasons. The families are stressed. There's increased demands on their time. They have to manage their homes and their child's online schooling and their work. And, and then they don't have outlets to go and have stress relief. It's, it's just a constant piling on of pressures. And then the families that I work with are dealing with children with significant communication challenges. And that is a big worry. Mm -hmm. That is a very, very big worry for, for families. And then they have decreased access to their social situations and to their play groups. So all of those things have led to parents feeling frustrated and, and worried and um, exhausted mm -hmm. and, and guilty. And so I was hoping that I could um, reach out to some of those families who are out there and not able to access the publicly funded services right away. Because there's also been a big disruption in access to um, services. Um, there's been an increased demand, I think, because families are seeing um, when you spend your full day with your child who can't communicate, you quickly realize how difficult it is yes. for them. And it's a little bit harder to, to ignore or to, to, you know, not purposely ignoring it, but just to kind of push it aside. Well, you know, maybe it will come. So not being able to access the publicly funded services has been very challenging. And then there's also been an increased demand on the private services too. Yeah, I, th I think you're so right. In many ways, the challenges are really in our face when we're with our children all the time, right? And um, it's, it's really difficult not to see it. Another thing that's really challenging is the fact that, you know, if our kids aren't at daycare or preschool or in the school setting or seeing their physicians in person, there's also the chance that some of these challenges might be missed, you know, kind of on the flip side. And I'm wondering That's true, yeah. Yeah, if you'd be able to talk a little bit about what parents might be looking for um, in terms of markers or signs that would indicate that a child is having communication difficulties, um, you know, at what point would parents, should parents be concerned? Um, what would you say for that? Absolutely. There's a lot of information out there. People have a lot of opinions about children who talk or don't talk. Well, well uh, intended advice, but not always correct. Mm -hmm. And so we're, you know, as speech language pathologists, we have a wealth of information about communication development and language development. So I'm, I'll talk to you a little bit about um, that and what you should be looking for. My specific um, topic today is around late talkers. So those are the toddlers who are late to start talking despite what is typical development in almost all areas. Mm -hmm. They usually have good receptive language or good understanding of language. Their play skills are good. They interact with their caregivers in an appropriate way. And also, and often the parents will say, he's really smart or she's really smart, but why can't they talk? Right? So for the late talkers, we don't really know why they're delayed. There's, there may be a genetic uh, component. Um, and you'll often hear people say, uh, oh, they'll grow out of it. Just, yeah. you know, just leave it. And in fact, 
many late talkers do outgrow it. So they're not all two-year-olds who aren't talking are going to go on to experience difficulties. Like 70, 70 to 80% of them will catch up. There are some of that group that um, continue to experience language delay when they go to school and their demands on their language systems increase. Mm -hmm. Like there's, they may have more receptive language, mild receptive language, or they have difficulty using more abstract language. Mm -hmm. But we know that 20 to 30% of those late talkers will not catch up Mm -hmm. and they will need intervention. So when people come to me about their children and being concerned about their they're not talking, then there's um, a number of markers that speech pathologists look for that are more um, indicative of of their risk factors. So I I can talk to you about uh, those. That would be great. And and just before you go into that, I just wanted to clarify in case our listeners aren't familiar, that receptive language you're talking about understanding. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So receptive language means comprehension of language or understanding of language. So the toddlers, you know, the parents will often say, um, you know, I can give him two-step instructions and he'll go and do it. Or Mm -hmm. I'll just be talking and I can tell he's understanding what I'm saying. Um, You you know, he'll pick out a little words and I, he'll go and run and do something just from us talking to each other. So, um, so most late talkers do have uh, good receptive language skills, but there are uh, like a, a risk factor for those kids is a mild receptive language. So just a little bit of a delay in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the risk factors that we look for when they, when they parents start telling us about their children is um, they were really quiet as an infant and little babbling. Mm -hmm. Um, I really ask parents a lot about that babbling stage. It's really significant. Mm -hmm. So when children are um, kind of skip that stage or we're just quiet as babies, I want to, that, that makes me sit up and listen a little bit more. Um, when they do start, if they do have some words, maybe not as many as what you would expect for their age, um, sometimes you hear a very limited consonants in their speech. So not a lot, of, not a big inventory of sounds. Um, there might be a history of ear infections. That's a really critical piece because if children go through a period where they're not getting the information, their brain's not getting the auditory information that they need then uh, it can really disrupt or, or kind of pause their language development. Um, we really will look to see how does the child try to copy things like children learn through imitation. And if um, they don't just readily try and copy words, then that's, that's an indicator. Um, sometimes the children have very few um, use of gestures to communicate. So some late talkers are, um, not using the words, but they're using natural gestures. They're making their point known. They're, um, you can hang out with them and you say, uh, yes, he understands. And look how he communicates by pointing or, mm-hmm. or all these made up gestures, but still no, no words. So if they have few gestures, then that's a bigger indicator. Um, a very uh, important factor for me is if there's a history of language delay in the family or learning difficulties. And so that really thorough history with the parents lets us um, hear more of these risk factors. 
And another really interesting um, risk factor is children, if they are just using um, nouns and they're not using very many verbs in their yeah. speech. Yeah. So I always ask the parents at two years old, children should have at least 40 verbs. And if they don't have those verbs and that, that's a very significant indicator that um, perhaps learning language is a little bit harder. So would an example of that be something like a child saying park as opposed to saying um, going to the go. park? Yeah. Like, go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So early verbs are go and eat and want and give me and sleep, you know, those those toddler verbs, the ones that are important for them. Um, yeah, so they might just say instead, they, they just don't use verbs. And verbs are harder to learn, right? Because they're abstract. Yeah. Like a, a, an object is something you can feel and see and, yes. you know, and interact with. But a verb is often something that's just a little bit more out there. Yeah, and yeah. changes forms too, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's harder to pin down. Yeah. In terms of typical development, we'd sort of be looking for, you know, lots of babbling as a baby and kind of this progression of sounds, lots of different sounds in their inventory, using lots of nice gestures to communicate, really making those efforts to communicate. Yeah, absolutely. So those are the risk factors. Um, but there are also some developmental milestones that we're looking at at different stages. Um, and again, there's a lot of variability, but there's some, some kind of markers where we say to parents, like if your child's 18 months old, then typically they're using about 20 words. And not and as we've been talking about, not just um, nouns, but verbs like eat and go, or maybe some simple prepositions like up and down, or adjectives like hot and sleepy, and social words like high and by. So, mm-hmm. so 20, 20 words at 18 months is a nice kind of marker for, mm-hmm. for typically developing toddlers. At two years, and a lot of parents are often um, Uh, find this quite surprising, but we really expect a hundred words and they're starting to combine two words together. And they, they're not words. um, When you combine the words together, they're not like uh, kind of learned in chunks, like all done. It tends to be like daddy go or dirty hands or doggy gone or eat cookie. So they're really solid word combinations. Um, And so when children, um, don't hit those milestones, then uh, we'd start to just pay a little bit more attention to what's going on with them. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful distinction talking about those word combinations, right? Because you do see the kiddos who maybe they do have a hundred words in their repertoire, but they're not actually putting those words together in a meaningful way. They're just, you know, using single words to communicate, for example. And parents are so wonderful at understanding what our kids mean, right? Absolutely. And I should just mention too, I think apart from me is a 
a big piece is beyond just the the kind of the numbers of the it's that interaction piece it's a very big like toddlers are social beings and they're using actively using those words for multiple purposes throughout their day to protest or to socialize with others or to um you know get what they want and need or to show people things so that interaction piece is uh, is also uh, uh, a part of what I look at when I when I start to observe toddlers and talk to their families so it's it's kind of like we're separating out that's the number and that's what you should be looking for but it's much more than that it's the the social interaction and the social communication piece as well yeah, there's, you know, the language in terms of the number of words, but what you're describing also sounds like how they put those words together, how they use them to interact with others. So kind yeah. of that overall picture. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I know for some families, something that can be a really difficult experience is when, you know, their own little spidey senses are going off and they're kind of feeling like, they're having concerns about their child and they bring this to others. Maybe it's another family member, maybe it's a physician or, you know, um, a specialist of some kind. And they're told, you know what? Yeah. Okay. Maybe there's something, but let's just wait and see how things progress. Um, you touched on this a little bit, but I wondered if you could talk about this idea of taking a wait and see approach with respect to communication difficulties. Absolutely. This happens all the time. And when I see parents and, you know, people are well-meaning. Sometimes people are misinformed. Uh, But, you know, I'm I'm always telling my parents, yeah, like you're you're always right. (laughs) Like just follow your instincts. If you have concerns, just follow your instincts and do what you think you need to do. Um, I never, I advocate for a let's wait and see approach. And in fact, I, I, my approach is let's just try it and see what happens approach. Mm -hmm. So, and so, you know, we may have some of those toddlers that would have just um, outgrown it, but you know, if we can set the stage for learning and get them to a place where they're learning faster, then there's nothing negative that comes out of that. And then if we catch the ones that really need the extra support, then that's let's just try it and see approach is a fantastic approach for them. Uh, The let's just wait and see, let's wait and see approach um, is problematic because it can lead to um, a number of things. Uh, First of all, it can widen the gap of what, how much the kids need to um, kind of, progress so or how much they need to develop so I often have parents say you know like I I knew six months ago that he was behind and I thought you know my doctor told me to just wait and so I did and now he's still at the same place but it's six months later and parents feel very bad when that happens very bad. They feel guilty. They feel like they've lost time. And I always reassure them that any, you know, if you can get in, then you're here, you're here, we're good. Um, But, you know, it just means that we have to work a little harder. Um, In the toddler set, it's really interesting. Behavior and communication are very, very linked. So when you wait and see, you can see a significant increase in behavior problems because there's nothing 
more frustrated than a toddler who cannot get their needs across. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. If they're trying to, you know, communicate their needs and they don't have the words to do that, and it's a situation that feels threatening to Absolutely. them, for example, very often we'll see some of those behavioral challenges or, you know, the responses by hitting, for example. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they'll communicate any way they can, sometimes fighting, sometimes hitting, sometimes avoiding, sometimes hiding, sometimes just frustration. So we really want to um, not have our children in their really formative years feel like that and feel, yeah. right? It, it, it contributes to self-esteem and frustration, self-regulation. The, the other um, reason is that um, in these times, the referrals take a long time. Yeah, right? I was thinking that too. Just get on a wait list. If Absolutely. you don't get services by the time your turn comes up, then no harm. Absolutely. Your name is on a list when, hopefully when they call your name, you'll say, Oh, I'm good. I don't need it. And then somebody else can step right in. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's another thing the parents, um, don't quite realize is that, you know, it can take up to nine months to be seen in the public service. So get your name on those wait lists. And then in the meantime, start intervening. It's such um, an important message for parents, and we're always trying to emphasize this, but just the importance of trusting your gut. As a parent, you know your child better than anyone, and Absolutely. it really is important to listen to those instincts and really trust what your gut is telling you. And, you know, just like you said, getting them on a list, seeking out these supports, there's no harm in doing that. And the really cool thing, what I've what I've had the privilege of seeing through your work as well is that so much of this intervention is actually just so fun for kids. Oh it's not like something that they don't want. It's actually really, really fun for them to do. So that's a nice aspect as well. It's not something that, you know, is difficult for them or that no. they don't enjoy. No, it's amazing. It's fun for everyone. It should be fun for everyone. If it's not fun, then something's wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so only positive things can come out of this fun, interactive intervention and um, the kids love it and the parents love it. Yeah, it's really wonderful. And you touched on this just a little bit at the end, but you said, you know, in the meantime, parents can start intervening. Um, what would your suggestions be for parents who are concerned about their child's communication? I love that you asked that question because that's what I'm here for today. Um, so speech pathologists um, work with parents Um you know, in the in the past, in an old school model, or even prior to the pandemic, where you just had access to speech and language pathologists, many parents felt if would bring their children in and, and kind of say, here, fix my child. That's what speech yeah. pathologists do. I'm going to bring them to you, you're going to fix them. Um, and that's just not the way things work with toddlers, right? I really see intervention, early intervention as a capacity building program. Right, with the parents as partners. So that the pandemic has forced that in a good way because, and, and so just be out of necessity, parents have had to engage a little bit more and maybe they wanted to before, but they just didn't feel very confident or it was just felt easier to kind of have the expert do it. 
Um, but now it's empowering. And when parents are partnered, we, we know for sure that parent implemented uh, intervention is as effective and in many, many cases more effective than the speech pathologist delivering the therapy. Um, I, I have a nice visual in my head. If you think of how many hours a parent um, spends with their child and think of a big bowl of candies and every little M&M in there represents uh, white M&M represents the hours that parents spend with their children. And then there's one little red M&M that dish, that M&M would be me. And you could see yeah. that that's, you know, not going to have the big impact that the parents <laughs> want. So um, parents as partners uh, is a big part of my intervention strategy. And there's many, many benefits from that. Um, first of all, the outcome on the children. Um, second of all, it reduces parents' stress levels, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. These parents feel very um, worried about their children and worried that they're, they can't, they're not doing enough or they're not helping or accessing support. So when you empower parents and they start working and learning the strategies, they become really effective over time and confident and their stress levels go down and they feel really empowered. Um, moms, particularly of late talkers, feel guilty, right? Yes. I'm not doing enough to support my child. I'm too tired. I don't know what to do. So I really like to work with parents as partners and, and increase their capacity. They're the influencers. Yes. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's giving them some of the tools to be able to help their own children. And also, you know, that empowerment of knowing that something's being done during this time period while they're mm -hmm. waiting or knowing that they're doing what they can to help support their child. I wanted to chat a little bit too about um, what that intervention can look like. So in a, yeah. in a broad stroke way, um, intervention for late talks, talkers with a speech pathologist tends to be pretty individualized and specific and dynamic to their, the individual child. So of course, I'm going to talk in generalities. Um, but uh, I, I want to just emphasize um, what learning looks like in toddlers. And the number one thing that I advocate is connection through play. So learning in toddlers doesn't look like flashcards or sitting them down and teaching them. It's play. And it's play with purpose and it's joyful play and movement place play and undivided time and connection. That's the number one starting place. And I think it's been challenging for families to find or allow themselves to do that during yeah. the pandemic for whatever reason. So hopefully with summer, summer is an awesome time for language development, just because so many more experiences open up to us. But I I'm hoping that with school being out and um, perhaps some holidays happening and just summer itself and the amount of sensory play that can happen, I hope there's more opportunities for families to experience um, play. Um, what's in a really important part to me is that it's play with purpose. So we're not yeah. just playing. Often people say, I took my child to the speech pathologist and all they did was play with them. <laughs> <laughs> we hear that a lot. Um, it may look like play, 
but I can guarantee you that it's play with purpose. And the speech pathologist always has some specific goals and strategies in mind when she's playing with your child. And hopefully you just by being in that interaction, uh, the parent will learn what those strategies are. Yeah. So we know that, um, you know, play is um, not the opposite of learning in toddlers. It is learning in toddlers. Yeah. And I think for parents too, you know, again, talking about families who are really overwhelmed right now and the idea of sometimes setting aside time to do some of these things that can feel challenging, but even just taking opportunities um, when you're doing something you'd be doing anyway. For example, when I'd be walking my son to school, I'd have my toddler with me. And on the way back, we would play a game where we're, you know, like have our swords out and we're fighting trolls on the way home or things. Things like that, where we're going on this walk anyway, but we turn the whole experience into play. So, you know, I often encourage parents to find those opportunities where you don't feel like you're adding something extra. Absolutely. That is so important. I, I was um, going to talk about our 10 natural teachable, teachable moments, yeah. and those are not specific um activities oh I'm going to plan this activity and I'm going to get it out I'm going to sit down at the table it's like the daily routines right yeah. oh you're singing a song to your child while you're changing the diaper his diaper you're face to face you're looking at the child we're building language in all the time to these activities and we're going to use specific strategies we're going to bring our language down so we're going to talk, simplify our language. We're going to be animated. We're going to be face-to-face. -face. So when you're, when you're changing the child's diaper, you can do a daily routine. This is the way we change our diaper, change our diaper, right? Mm -hmm. And then that repetitive routine, animated, face-to-face, -face, that is learning. And I can guarantee children will love that. Um, family chores, right? Every little toddler loves to follow mom and dad around and copy what they're doing. So sweep, sweep, sweep the floor. Or, oh, we got to wash the table. Oh, it's wet. Oh, no. So finding opportunities within the daily routines like meal preparation or meal time, right? There's so many words and sensory experiences. Yuck. Or, hmm, right? All toddler friendly talk. So visiting friends less these days, but hopefully more as, as we, we get out there. Story time, amazing. Books, yeah. songs. That is how toddlers learn. It's these little verbal routines that they see and hear every day. And, and really knowing what how to build our goals into those opportunities, uh, toy, plays, toy play as well, and play-based movement, you know, swinging from that little monkey bar or jumping off a little platform. Yeah. yeah. So really adding language in and, you know, talking to your child or talking with your child about what you're doing anyway and making it fun for them, finding ways to make it animated and exciting. Yeah, dynamic and connected and interactive and uh, building language. And so some of the very basic strategies that we talk about with parents with low, um, with um, late talkers are to get down uh, to your child's level, 
face to face. So often the children need to see and hear the words that um, are out there. It gives them that extra information that perhaps they're not picking up on if their parents is talking while they're standing up or with their backs to them. Uh, Bring your language down. So talk about what the child's interested in, follow his lead, and then talk and then bring your language down to a simpler level. So instead of saying, oh, look, the truck's going really fast, you might say, vroom, fast, mm-hmm. vroom, vroom, truck, go, go, truck, vroom. So animated, a little extra oomph. Um, I always joke with my parents, I don't actually speak like I do all the time but when I'm with my kids because it's I'm a little over the top right like speech pathologists are pretty animated we want to draw attention to our face and our words and so we get that extra little oomph behind our talking and the kids love it it gives them the information they need it makes a connection it's interactive and if they're going to imitate that's the time that they're going to do it um I really, really emphasize to parents, please avoid pressure. Don't Mm -hmm. like I, my first advice to parents is always take that word say out of your vocabulary. Yes. Oh, that's just put the word out there and then wait. So instead of say go, you're just going to have the car and you're going to go go Mm -hmm. and then pause. The pause is really important. The pause is important. It allows the child to process the language. It allows the child to um, perhaps try to get it together, to copy it. If that white space is always filled with a parent talking, then the child doesn't have the opportunity to, to kind of put it back there. Yeah. So even if you're playing with, you know, objects, just say you have a little dog and, you know, you pause for a moment and maybe say, hmm, or the dog seems hungry. Hmm. Yeah. Something like yeah. that where you're kind of pausing in between and giving them a chance to process that and maybe come up with the next step there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard when parents um, have children who don't talk because we feel, they feel like, um, you know, they have to uh, stimulate their language and put it all out there. And they also feel a little anxious. So they want to say this, say that they just want their child to give them something back. But that nice pause really sends a message to the child, hey, it's your turn, but without any pressure. So you Mm -hmm. put it out there, you wait. And if they don't say anything, then you just repeat your word and then you go on to something else. I think a lot of the press, it's really, really interesting to me how the toddlers, how they know. They know they can't talk. They know that their parents want them to talk and they feel pressured, right? And so when a parent, if a parent can remove that pressure, then all of a sudden things just become a little bit more interactive, a little bit more playful, a little bit more fun. And going on that point, um, I think one of another thing that I like to communicate to parents is less questions, less questions, less testing questions. If you're asking your child um, a question, it should be so that you can model an answer or because you want to know some information, but it shouldn't be a test question. What's this? What's he doing? Where'd it go? What's that? What's this? And that tends to be a thing that um, 
a strategy that some parents use to try to elicit more, but it actually just kind of shuts down conversation. Shuts them down. So instead of that, you'd suggest either leaving it open or just saying something that creates an open-ended opportunity for them to answer or not. And then parents go ahead if they don't and repeat. You could do two things. If uh, instead of a question, if you ask a question, then be prepared to model the answer because if your child can't answer it, then it just kind of results in um, a kind of a shutdown in that interaction. Hey, my mom asked me a question. I have no way to answer it the interactions over. So then if the mom says, you know, uh, where to go? Oh, it's under. Yeah. So you can model the answer or you just comment under. Oh, it went under. So that just kind of alleviates a lot of the pressure on, on children, on toddlers who know, who know that it's hard. I've always been amazed. Um, I never assume that a two-year-old or even a you know a younger child doesn't feel and understand how hard it is for them. Yeah, that really makes sense. And also, you know, explain some of that frustration that you were describing before. And so often the response to that for kiddos when they can't communicate with their parents, just like you said, to do that shutting down and, you know, to kind of disengage, which is really tough for them also, because they're missing out on that fun experience. And it also yeah. Yeah, reduces, you know, the opportunities to stimulate that learning. So yeah, what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, it's a lot of actually fun play, a lot of labeling what we're doing anyway, a lot of just talking to our child about what's happening, creating those verbal routines, um, using things like songs and stories. Um, all of this sounds like a lot of fun. By yeah, the way. it is a lot of fun. If it's not fun, then there's no learning happening, right? Um, and some parents say it's really hard hard for me to play with my child. Um, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to play with them. I think the biggest thing is you have a connection with your child. Every parent does. And if you just follow your instincts around, like do what you feel good at, and then you're going to connect with your child. You don't have to come up with elaborate play schemes or anything. Like follow the child's lead, make it fun, playful, have fun together. If you feel joy, then your child feels joy. And I can guarantee you that um, learning is happening. And, And be kind to yourself, right? Like if it's not a natural thing, then just do it step by step. Start with things that um, you do do well naturally and you do connect with your child with and then work towards building um, and finding other opportunities. So some parents might say, I'm not really good at sitting down and playing with my child. Uh, I just, it's really hard for me, but I love it when he joins me when I'm cooking. Right. Or bath time's amazing. Like that's a time where my child really kind of my captive audience, we've got this sensory experience. So bad time routines can be part of it too. It doesn't have to be, um, when I talk about play, it's not necessarily like play experiences, it's building play into all of your experiences. That's such a great point. Yeah. Building play into all of your experiences. And even within that, if you're kind of setting the stage, also following your child's lead, that was a great um, suggestion as well. Picking up on what they're interested in or picking up on, you know, um, what they're noticing 
and kind of following. Absolutely. Up that. That's a key principle to speech pathology. Um, we teach the parents right away to just observe their child, to wait and listen to what um, they're doing. So when you're following your child's lead, you're watching your child, you're trying to connect, um, enter the interaction together, and then you start commenting on what the child's interested in. So it's child-led intervention. It's not like, okay, now we're going to go play with this and I'm, you're going to I'm going to make you do your truck this way is more like, oh, you're playing with your truck. Look, it's going down. Wee. So it's all about Join your child where he's at already or she's at where they're at. So I like that truck example, you know, because from there you might do little things like stop the truck from going for a moment and see what happens or, or pausing or bringing out something like pretending to give it a wash Absolutely. or, you know, doing little. <laughs> Absolutely. Like trucks um, uh, are just a or any vehicles are just, there's so many opportunities to teach verbs and um, descriptive words and uh, concept words, big, small, fast, slow, um, up, down. It's going through the tunnel. Wow, look at, uh-oh, he got stuck. Well, we have to wash it off. We could put the animals in the truck. We could take them out. Oh, he says moo when he comes out, right? Mm. Playful. Um, playful experiences down at your child's level where they're face to face and really connecting with you. These are great. And I really like that these are suggestions that parents can use while they're waiting for services or support. You know, that these are things parents can be doing from day one. This isn't anything that parents have to wait until their child has been identified as having difficulties. These are things that they can be doing throughout. Um, one area that parents often struggle with, like I hear this a lot in my practice, I imagine you hear this a lot as well, but just wondering about screen time, like use of screen time, um, whether any screen time or how much screen time is appropriate for young children. I'm just wondering what you would say about screen time for young kids and whether it helps or hinders language development. That's a really good question. And it's been a very um, interesting one over, over the course of the last year and a half, because I think many parents have out of necessity had to um, use their, their screen time just to get through their work day or, and so, you know, I'm not here to make anybody feel guilty about it. Um, but I do like to inform parents. Um, so I'm all about, I remember that time in my household where I just needed to get stuff done. And so I would selectively use the screen time back in that day, it was a TV, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> to buy me some time during our snack hour where I had to make dinner. <laughs> so I get that I, I've been there with that. My concern is when I hear that the toddlers are on for hours and hours and, and it's not uncommon common for parents to tell me that they've, you know, their toddlers are on screens for, you know, four or five hours a day. Our, the World Health Organization doesn't recommend any screen time for children under two. That's number one. And I'm an advocate for that. I'm concerned about what screen time takes away from our Absolutely. interactions, right? Yeah. So if you figure, so we've been talking about children learning through, learning through play and interactions and 
So the, the problem with the screens is um, they're very passive and, and there has been um, research that show that the toddlers don't learn very well in such a passive way. So uh, many parents might think, oh, well, even if I just put some educational stuff on there, then they're learning. Well, it's very passive. Toddlers learn through interactions. And so when a, a child is on a screen, then they're losing out on the opportunities for the parent-child interactions. They're also losing out on opportunities to play with their siblings. And so, yeah. you know, those people interactions are very, very important for learning language. Um, we also know that children need play-based movement for learning and sensory rich experiences. So a tablet is very one dimensional or a screen is very one dimensional. You're sitting passively in front of it. You're not moving around. Um, OTs and uh, occupational therapists and speech pathologists um, are often have a lot of overlap when OT will tell you as well, like those, those early motor uh, play-based movement experiences are formative. There are, things are happening mm -hmm. and, and we're all, all that whole child is connected through, through play-based movement and sensory rich experiences. Um, the other thing that tablets or greens take away is that we're not learning, the kids aren't learning naturally through discovery and exploration, right? Like if you think of the, you know, what's happening when you go outside and you start interacting and, and playing in the grass or, um, you know, feeling the sand in your toes or pouring things, water into other things, um, that's just not accessible to you on a screen. Um, and, and then, of course, as a speech pathologist, it's all about that, that back and forth, that uh, relationship. Yeah. 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 So my recommendation to parents is um, I get it. And I understand that there's some necessity. I would say shoot for trying to have no screen time. Um, use it to your advantage and be very selective in what you do choose. And then um, if you can, be part of that interaction. If you're interacting with the child on the screen, that you've built the interaction in. So, you know, uh, you know, songs on the TV where you're singing and doing actions and singing that could be a better uh, screen um, yeah. experience than say an iPad or, or a tablet where you're just, they're, too, they're just swiping. For sure, yeah, or possibly talking to, you know, yeah. a grandparent, for example, yeah. or to a family member. Absolutely. Um, that way, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and then I think, you know, also doing our best to counter that screen time or, or the things that we're missing while they're on screens, doing what we can to counter that by really promoting that face-to-face -face time with them, doing things like reading with them, you know, not losing out on those other activities. So even if screen time is in the picture to some degree, um, really trying to emphasize in the times that we have with them, focusing on the quality of that and, you know, playing with them, talking to them all of the things that you were talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. If I had a choice between a book and a screen, I would choose that book anytime because it is that interaction, right? The, the sitting, whether it's snuggle time on, on your child on your lap or whether they're face-to-face -face and you're opening little doors in the book and, you know, mm. like the book is interactive. I think that's the key. It has to be interactive and that's what I'm always advocating for. 
Yeah, that's a really great suggestion. So even, you know, when we can, doing what we were talking from the kitchen while we're making right. dinner, kind of running in and out right. to say, oh, <laughs> yeah. Here, yeah, kind kind of commenting on um, on what they're watching. Absolutely. What would your suggestions be? Like, you know, again, we know that for parents who are concerned about their kids and they're starting to navigate this process of accessing help, which in and of itself can be a journey. It can be a frustrating experience. It can be confusing. You know, you kind of reach a point where you feel like, okay, I'm ready to do this. And then it's like, well, okay, now you have to wait several months until you can. Um, But I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for parents who are starting this process of accessing help for their child, where would they be able to look in the community? Where would they start? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, there are a, there are a huge amount of supports in our community. Um, there are and also online, you can number one thing I would suggest is to, uh, if you have concerns, go to the first words, Shields first words program, they have um, a referral process where you fill out a form and then the questions will direct the parents to um, whether they need to refer their child or, uh, or, and even if they do need to refer them to some resources. So that's a, a great place to start. Um, second, uh, there are lots of uh, private speech and language pathologists in the city and, uh, you know, they can reach out to them and find out what intervention would involve and, and, um, things that they can get and and hopefully get started with that. I often direct parents, um, the Hannon program is a a program um, out of the States. It's what a lot of speech pathologists use for early intervention, a lot of those principles, and they have some nice resources. They have a great website. It's hannon.org. And um, you can start exploring that. Uh, there are some resources. Uh, our local library has the book, uh, their program called It Takes Two to Talk. And so mm-hmm. I, I often um, recommend parents get that resource, like um, sign it out of the library. It's a really nice option. We have a lot of copies in Ottawa. Um, it can be quite an expensive book with uh, to buy uh, online because you have to pay the shipping and the and the exchange rate but Ottawa has that book in its library um, when my parents are waiting to see me I usually encourage them to access the it takes two to talk or to take a look at the banter website uh, there's a whole section on like talkers there and things that you can do while you're waiting and I think um, be kind to yourself and Make sure that um, you're enjoying your child and and hopefully not putting too much pressure on yourself and your child. I think these are this is a very short period of time in your child's life, and um, it's um, easy to get lost in our worry. So do what you need to do to move forward and then just enjoy your child and try to incorporate some of the strategies that we've been talking about. 
Yeah, that's really helpful, Shauna. Yeah. So um, in Ottawa, you know, starting at Chio's First Words or in other communities, they probably also have similar programs, right, through um, public services. And then private speech paths would be another option, um, seeking out services privately. And then in the meantime, accessing some of these online resources. And we will include the links with this episode for those resources that you're discussing. That's great. And just, um, yes, uh, to your point about other communities um, across Ontario anyways, and I'm sure probably across Canada, the local health um, or providers have early intervention services. So they're called different things in different communities. In Ottawa's first words, I think it's language express out in the valley so the best thing to do is to try to contact your your local health provider excellent that's really helpful and you know you've talked about so many helpful things during this episode and i wondered if you would be able to share what would be three takeaways that you would want our listeners to know just like three things to remember and to think about if they're going through this experience with their child right now of course yes um well i think the biggest um thing for my takeaway, one of my the top three is uh, instead of just wait and see, uh, let's just try it and see. So let's figure out what might help our child and let's try it and see what happens. So uh, that in itself is empowering and it feels like you're moving forward and, um, and you're actively, actively doing something for your child. Um, number two would be play is learning. And real-time play experiences, play with purpose, just play with your child. And and then the third would be that while you're playing, connect first. Parents have the biggest influence on their child's language development, and that happens through connecting and interacting with them. So be joyful, connect, and be present and, and for, for your child. I really love those suggestions. I think encouraging parents to turn inward, to turn in, lean into the experience, connect with your child. Don't be afraid to explore the possibility of of seeking help. There's really no harm that comes from it. And, you know, again, like we talked about, oftentimes the children really enjoy it and, you know, gives the parents that sense of empowerment. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to work with families when they start incorporating these strategies um, to see how it changes everything yeah right it does it changes it becomes a joyful experience for them instead of just this big worry Absolutely. Because I think for, you know, parents, it can be so hard um, when your child is experiencing communication difficulties. For some parents, they don't know how to communicate with them. They just don't know. So in these tools and these suggestions, um, it takes away some of that hesitation and it helps them have a starting point at least. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Shauna, this is really helpful information. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing all of your knowledge and your expertise. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a real opportunity to be able to to speak to you. And hopefully I've helped some families out there to feel a little bit reassured and, and given them some ideas about where to go next. Absolutely. And I'm just going to encourage our listeners again to check out the resources that are linked to this episode.